welcome to Top Stories of the Week, presented by Girl on the Gov, the podcast. This exclusive bonus episode drops on Tuesdays and gives you the 411 on the need to know political news and tea. So as always, we'll keep you updated. Welcome back to Top Stories of the Week. The first thing I just must ask you is, did you hear that Lauren Boebert is going to be a grandma? Oh, oh, did I? And that the girl that 15. her son impregnated, no, probably 14. She said, can just confirm that she's over 14. Like, okay, so she's 14. Otherwise, you would just say 15. Right. And she's eight months pregnant. So eight months ago, she could have been 13. Wait, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that part. Yeah. And then she also was like praising rural teen pregnancy rates and like saying how great it is because they're like on the rise. Like, wait, what? Yeah. She's insane. You know what this reminds me of, which is something that I was looking at this morning when I was putting the newsletter together is the fact that West Virginia just passed a quasi child marriage ban. And it still has like, if you're 16 and 17, you have to get parental consent. But basically under that age, it's banned. And this Republican there, Republican representative literally had a hissy fit, like a full-on hissy fit, had to get escorted out of the chamber because he didn't want this ban on child marriage to pass. Good Lord. And it just feels like it's in the same category. Yeah. So her son is 17. So she, Lauren Bobert, is 36. Her son is 17. Wait, so and how- this girl is a, a, apparently over the age of 14, but is eight months pregnant. So could, again, could have been very well 13 Wait, when she got impregnated. 36? Yeah. Wait, 36. So she has served him when she was- At 19. Yeah. It's just like everything is so conflicting from the protect the children thing and the like anti-choice thing. It's just like all so backwards and the hypocrisy just again is baffling at every turn. It's it's definitely baffling. I think, well, I'm not surprised anymore, quite honestly. Uh-huh. What I honestly want to know is how long they were trying to muffle this story. Because if she's months. pregnant, <laughs> right? But I'm like wondering like when they found out and yeah. what their PR strategy was around it. Well, they've definitely like knew around her election because that was only four months ago. So I'm sure that was a PR moment for them to keep that under wraps. Well, look, Adam Frisch is running against her for 2024. His campaign is up and running. So Mm -hmm. if y'all want him to win, and that was what that election was decided within 500 votes, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyways, go get him. Go get him. Well, while that was not a top story, we do have top stories to run through and some big ones indeed because we've had... Some crazy breaking news over the last few days, especially involving big banks and the financial world, which, as we know, like, we're not math girls. We always have Delano come on and explain all the economics of the economy. And um, (laughs) we're going to run through the the story to the best of our ability, but definitely a big one that we got to run through. So. Kicking off with our top story of the week, banks and Biden. President Joe Biden on Monday told Americans that the nation's financial systems were safe, seeking to project calm following the swift and stunning collapse of two banks that prompted fears of a broader upheaval. Your deposits will be there when you need them, he said. U.S. regulators closed the Silicon Valley Bank on Friday after it experienced a traditional bank run where depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. It is the second largest bank failure in U.S. history behind the 2008 failure of 
Washington Mutual, but the financial bloodletting was swift. New York-based Signature Bank also failed. The president, speaking from the White House shortly before a trip to the West Coast, said he'd seek to hold those responsible accountable and press for better oversight and regulation of larger banks. And he promised no losses would be borne by taxpayers. So he also said, we must get the full accounting of what happened. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Biden also said management of the banks should be fired. And this is another quote, if the bank is taken over by the FDIC, the people running the bank should not work there anymore. He said, referring to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, the agency responsible for ensuring the stability of the banking system. So at more than $110 billion in assets, Signature Bank is the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. Another beleaguered bank. First Republican bank announced Sunday that it had bolstered its financial health by gaining access to funding from the Fed and J.P. Morgan Chase. The developments left markets jittery as trading began Monday. The Asian and European markets fell while U.S. markets traded higher. Shares in mid-sized commercial banks were hammered despite assurances from Biden. The Bank of England and UK Treasury said early Monday that they had facilitated the sale of a Silicon Valley bank subsidiary in London to HSBC, Europe's biggest bank, ensuring the security of £6.7 billion or $8.1 billion of deposits. In an effort to shore up confidence in the banking system, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said Sunday that all Silicon Valley bank clients would be protected and able to access their money. So the agency said in a joint statement, this step will ensure that the U.S. bank's banking system continues to perform in its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth. Under the plan, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including those whose holdings exceed $250,000 insurance limit, will be able to access their money on Monday. Though Sunday steps marked the most extensive government intervention in the banking system since the 2008 financial crisis, the actions are relatively limited compared with what was done 15 years ago. The two failed banks themselves have not been rescued. The taxpayer money has not been provided to them. Some prominent Silicon Valley executives feared that if Washington didn't rescue their failed bank, customers would make runs on other financial institutions in the coming days. Stock prices plunged over the last few days at other banks that catered to technology companies such as First Republic and PacWest Bank. Among the bank's customers are a range of companies from California's wine industry, where many wineries rely on Silicon Valley Bank for loans. We can't have that. And technology startups <laughs> devoted to combating climate change. I got a ton of emails on Sunday, aka yesterday, from brands and companies that I shop at, like Obey Fitness being one, like I use their workout platform. They bank with Silicon Valley. And so basically what this meant was as people did these bank runs, people were not able to access their capital. There was no capital, liquid capital for them to be able to use, which means that for all of these companies, they can't file, or this has now changed obviously since, file payroll, have access to the capital that they use to pay all of their different expenses. All of that money after that 250000 FDIC insured money was technically without the government stepping in, gone. Mm-hmm. Which the fact that we got to this point where this is happening is the result of the rolling back of regulations under the Trump administration. Elizabeth Warren wrote an op-ed on this, but she has been leading the pack on bank-related regulation. She has been literally saying this is going to happen for so long. And why this is like so scary generally from a banking perspective of seeing like not just one, but two banks in the yeah. course of such a short amount of time fail. But when you look at like Silicon Valley specifically, it is so connected to startups and also connected to VC, which obviously mm-hmm. connected to startups. So you have all of these growth stage companies, these companies that are just getting off the ground, bring in 50 to 100 employees, and they're getting totally fucked. Mm-hmm. And I was now, that there's already mass layoffs happening regardless. Right. So, so scary. So imagine being like a business owner and say you have $5 million in capital, meaning like liquid capital, you have $5 million in this bank, right? And then all of a sudden, 
your the only money you're able to access is 250,000 of that. Yeah. So regardless to also recap in here because the government is stepping in uninsured monies meaning monies after that $250,000 limits will be available to all of the companies that had accounts at Silicon Valley but the management the employees or the founders of the bank are not being given their money so that's the important difference of i think also looking at bailouts they are ensuring the safety of the people that banked there not the bank mm-hmm. and are trying to offload the bank to ironically another bank like the best the best case scenario is another bank buying the defunct bank right wild wild yeah. to me so i think this is one of those things that is so scary from so many different angles, whether you're a business owner, whether you're just a Joe Schmo and you have your money in a bank. Like, this is just one of those things where it's like, this is why we need regulation. It doesn't mean it messes up the free market. It means it protects the consumers and it protects the business owners that are using that capital to create more business and generate more revenue in the economy. So anyways, this really got my goat. I've been reading all these just obviously yeah. as a business owner, but also this is one of those things that like really pisses me off for, I think, very much good reason and is such a preventable disaster. And I think one of the things that we talk about so often here is how many disasters we deal with that are so preventable because we're just band-aiding all the time. And this is a really good example of like if we fixed the problem in the first or worked on fixing the problems in the first place, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be putting mm. all these businesses at risk. We want to be a com- country where we're leading in the business world and leading in innovation. And then we're putting all of these startups and companies and mom and pop shops and even bigger than that too at risk because of bank mismanagement and risky investment portfolios. Insane to me. Yeah. And the other thing that I think can be confusing too is like a bailout versus like the government stepping in. Yeah. Which Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, is saying that they won't be bailing out Silicon Valley Bank. That is a distinct difference from what happened in 2008. So like the distinct difference is protecting kind of the individuals who work with the banks versus the bank itself as like a broader entity. That would make it a bailout, which is what they did in 2008. So that isn't happening. Janet Yellen is saying they won't be doing that. So there's that on that. But definitely a huge story. One. Mm-hmm. And also just as like a piece of advice for like anyone building a business, like have money in more than one bank account because this, this shit case. happens just in case. Yeah, this should happen. And yeah. when I mean want more than one bank account, I mean money at more than one bank. Mm-hmm. My advice for the day. Lovely. Well, we'll keep everyone updated on this story as it unfolds. But big one from mm-hmm. from the weekend. I have friends who like just all the finance bros out here. Literally, like working worked all weekend, twelve hours, twelve hour days, just crisis mode, crisis mode. Totally. Yeah. Well, speaking of crisis mode, we have to talk about the Willow Oil Project. Yeah. Mm, this one is just oy vey. The Biden administration is approving a controversial major oil project on Alaska's petroleum-rich North Slope that supporters say represents an economic lifeline for indigenous communities in the region, but environmentalists say is counter to President Joe Biden's climate goals. The decision on ConocoPhillips Alaska's Willow Project and a federal reserve roughly the size of Indiana can't even, like, fathom. Like... The size of Indiana. Honestly, I feel well, like Alaska drove- also is so huge. Like, have you ever have you seen just like the pictures where it, like you just like tilt the globe and the globe is at a certain like vantage point where you can actually see the size of Alaska compared to like the U.S. Canada? It's massive, insane, insane. You no, know what I would like visually like to do. This is gonna sound so weird, but do you remember when we were little and there were like those puzzles, like they're like the wood cutout puzzles, and you had to like put the like the wood state into its place. Oh yeah. Like I would almost want to do that and like see like put Alaska in like the middle of the cutout of the US. 
and just like visually see it. Like I feel like that would be just like so helpful. So yeah. But in that little cutout, you know, Alaska is probably just made small like it is on the globe. Mm. Okay, fine. Ruin my idea. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. Well, anyways, if anyone wants to send me a puzzle, still, the door is open. But I guess so let's get back into this little situation. So what is the Willow Project? The project could produce up to 180,000 barrels of oil a day, according to the company, about 1.5% of total U.S. oil production. The project is the project is the largest proposed oil drilling on U.S. public land and the biggest oil field in Alaska in decades. Alaska Republican U.S. Senator Dan Sullivan said the development could be one of the biggest, most important resource development projects in our state's history. On average, about 499,700 barrels of oil a day Slow through it. the trans guys. Big, big number for Sam. Big number. I. It's just, it's just hard. Okay. Anyways, that amount of barrels of oil a day flow through the Trans Alaska Pipeline, well below the late 1980s peak of 2.1 million barrels. Extracting and using the oil from Willow would produce the equivalent of more than 278 million tons, 306 million short tons of greenhouse. <laughs> fuck of greenhouse gases over the project's 30-year life, roughly equal to the combined emissions from 2 million passenger cars over the same time period. It would have a roughly 2% reduction in emissions compared to the Houston-based ConocoPhillips' favored approach. Is there support for Willow? There is widespread political support in Alaska, including from the bipartisan congressional delegation, including Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy and state lawmakers. There also is a majority consensus and support in the North Slope regions of the president of the group Voice of the Arctic, Inpiat, whose members include leaders from across... Excuse me. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Whose members include leaders from across much of that region. Supporters have called the project balanced and say communities would benefit from taxes generated by Willow to invest in infrastructure and provide public services. U.S. Representative Mary Patola, Democrat's UPIC, said that there is such consensus in the region and across Alaska that this project is a good project. She hoped to make the case to Biden that the project would create well-paying union jobs. What are the politics of the decision? Biden's decision pits Alaska lawmakers against environmental groups and many Democrats in Congress who say the project is out of step with his goals to slash planet warming carbon emissions in half by 2030 and move to clean energy. Environmentalists say approval of the project represents a betrayal by Biden, who promised during the 2020 campaign to end new oil and gas drilling on federal lands. Biden has made fighting climate change a top priority and backed a landmark law to accelerate expansion of clean energy, such as wind and solar power, and move the U.S. away from the oil, coal, and gas situation. He has faced attacks from Republican lawmakers who blame him for gasoline price spikes that occurred after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's funny how that happens because... The oil's drinking in record profits. Yeah. 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 So it's the math's not mathing. Yet again, it's the corporations. So just want to circle. your buddies. It's your buddies. Yeah. GOP buddies. buddies. Mm. Did the Biden administration support Willow early on? Justice Department attorneys in 2021 defended in court an environmental review conducted during the Trump administration that approved the project. But a federal judge later found flaws with the analysis, setting aside the approval and returning the matter to the land management agency for further work. That led to the review released in early February. Earth Justice and other environmental groups encouraged project opponents to call the White House, urging Willow's rejection. This did make it onto our IG story. Just saying that Action Jackson, which is where you can go to find some action items. Same with our newsletter. Go sign up, growinggup.com. Thank you. Anyways, what about greenhouse gas emissions? Federal officials under former Do- President Donald Trump claimed increased domestic oil drilling would result in fewer net global emissions because it would decrease petroleum imports. U.S. companies adhere to stricter environmental standards than those in other countries, they argued. The latest review under the Biden administration is getting pushback over its inclusion of a suggestion that 50% of Willow's net emissions could be offset, including by planting more trees on national forests to capture and store carbon dioxide. Reforestation work on federal lands was something the administration already planned and needed to meet its broader climate goals, said Michael Lazarus, a senior scientist at the Stockholm Environment Institute. That doesn't help you meet a reduction goal. It's absurd, said Lazarus. It doesn't address the fact that we're increasing global emissions by doing this project. We're locking in emissions for 30 years into the future when we should be on a reduction schedule. Period. Boom. 
Next question. What about Biden's promises to curtail oil drilling? I say the word curtail is fun to say. Biden suspended oil and gas lease sales after taking office and promised to overhaul the government's fossil fuels program. Attorneys general from oil producing states convinced a federal judge to lift the suspension, a ruling later overturned by an appeals court. The administration ultimately dropped its resistance to leasing in a compromise over last year's climate law. The measure requires the Interior Department to offer for sale tens of millions of acres of onshore and offshore leases before it can approve any renewable energy leases. The number of new drilling permits to companies with federal leases spiked in Biden's first year as companies stockpiled drilling rights and officials said they were working through a backlog of applications from the Trump administration. Approvals dropped sharply in fiscal year 2022. The Biden administration has offered less acreage for lease than previous administrations, but environmentalists say the administration hasn't done enough. So what other actions is the Biden administration taking? On Sunday, a day before the Willow Project was approved, Biden announced he will bar drilling nearly 3 million acres of the Arctic Ocean and impose new protections in the Petroleum Reserve. The withdrawal of the offshore area ensures the important habitat for whales, seals, polar bears, and other wildlife will be protected in perpetuity from extractive development, the White House said in a statement. The action collides protections for the entire Beaufort Sea Planning Area, building Building upon President Barack Obama's 2016 withdrawal of the Chukchi Sea planning area and the majority of the Beaufort Sea, the White House said. Separately, the Biden administration moved to protect more than 13 million acres within the Petroleum Reserve, a 23 million acre chunk of land on Alaska's North Slope set aside a century ago for the future oil production. It's just, there it's it just is. Me. There's the run through, big run through, because it's a big story. And I think the like main highlight takeaway from, from this for me was the quote from Michael Lazarus saying, it doesn't address the fact that we're increasing global emissions by doing this project. We're locking in emissions for 30 years into the future when we should be on a reduction schedule, which is like, that was the plan. That was the campaign promise. And this is a huge project to kind of skirt away from that promise. And and approve. So not loving this energy Mm-mm. from Biden. Another moment as well. Biden really got elected by young people. He would be nothing without them. Young people really care about climate change and taking big action on climate change. And this is the antithesis of that. So not loving that from from him and, and, and his team. Yeah. Not loving this energy either. And in in tow, maybe that's the, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but basically like they're amongst like other young activists and just young civically engaged people. There was such a pushback on this across TikTok, across IG, like you really saw it. Like there was a lot of social media activism around this and just young people activism, like off platforms too, but just, I think on social media, trying to make other young people aware of this and spread awareness and send public comment and all of that shit. And call the administration, you know, all all things, all the things. And so it's just, look, you're not going to win every battle. I know that. But it's just interesting that, like, you know, this one, this became a battle royale. And it's not one that the young people won. Yeah. It's just all frustrating. The other thing, I don't know why this is making me think of this but speaking of tiktok and speaking of young people and speaking of the government just discounting us once again yeah just even this whole stuff around tiktok too it's just only making me think i'm like because now it's like this become this bipartisan take in washington that tiktok should be banned and while there's some arguments that make sense i I just can't help but think that this is just an attack on young people and I agree with that. the way we mobilize and the way we turn out for elections and the way that we mobilize around certain issues and make noise. And it just seems like a little bit of a mute button on young people. And well, so you've got it worries Zuff me. That's been literally lobbying mm-hmm. everyone for since pretty much TikTok became a huge threat to Meta in terms of just market competition Mm -hmm. to get TikTok banned. Like TikTok getting banned did not come out of nowhere, didn't come out of, you know, a few reps being like, 
oh, the data in China, it came out of a lot of lobbying from Meta's team. Yeah. So, which also I saw this TikTok that was commenting on, it was like, you know, like he wouldn't have to be so worried about the competition if he like literally just gave people like chronological feed on Instagram, like maybe fix your crappy products instead of going after other products. It's such a weird thing and such an interesting thing. And Meta has been preparing for with some of their product rollouts that like we're not loving, but like they've been preparing for the idea that TikTok will get banned and they'll have to be there for the replacement that people go to for reels, for example, instead of TikToks, like things like that. And so it's like, okay, see right through that shit. You got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah. But the other thing I even think deeper about is just the whole conversation around elections, like beyond their products and the competition and them wanting to be the top dog again like they have been known to interfere with our elections before that they've they've also sold data to china like why are we not worried that meta sold data to china and now we're worried that tiktok is doing that i'm not saying that that's not like not saying it's not a problem but bring that same energy to to all of them and right yeah it just makes me think and makes me worry that it is ultimately kind of this weird like backwards way of like interfering with elections again Um, you're you're interfering with the spread of information specifically free information yeah and the rise of citizen journalists Mm -hmm. right which i wonder under like freedom of right you've got like what Freedom of speech, but obviously freedom of the press. Where does a citizen journalist yeah. fall on that? So well, yeah, it's just it's just also like we know how shitty like the Instagram algorithm is to like getting stuff out there. But TikTok's great for getting stuff out there right. and spreading the word. And like, well, again, TikTok has its its faults. Like it does do an amazing job of like bringing power to the people and like bringing people a platform where like they can be heard quick and like get the word out about really important stuff so again it just all really worries me and i don't know why this semi just connected to the conversation just around young people and the campaign promises that we push forward and elected biden for and now seeing him his administration and a range of other electeds in washington wanting to ban tiktok like the platform that really like mobilized this demographic for them and like brought these issues to the forefront is now being potentially axed so it's just it's just makes you think you know oh it does oh it does and we are very much on the same page which is something weirdly that the senate is on for this next story (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have some Senate stuff to get to get through. Hey, guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. 
So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair care and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pro's covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing premixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is... Definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girl and gov. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So next story is revolving around them. Classic. The Senate will begin voting this week on legislation to what? It is just like the most like classic thing of like the like Senate just gives me in character energy. Like it mm-hmm. would it would be about them. I know the there House was, is like definitely wait, giving them a run for their money. But. No, a thousand percent. And like in Will's book, there's this like section where he's talking about the difference of like being it's the state Senate versus like federal, but state Senate versus like the state house. And basically like how the Senate is like more like formal, like main character mm-hmm. energy. And then like the house is chaos. Like everyone's whatever. Yeah. He describes this scene where he like witnesses basically like the leader go over to the majority leader and be like, raise your hands, fake you're really mad at me. Like they want me to be mad at you. And so they like literally are like making this whole scene about like they're like probably talking about like what they had for lunch and they're like, oh, the sandwich. <laughs> but like and the like group of like Republicans in this particular case are like over, you know, on the side and they're like, oh, good. They're, he's giving them hell. Meanwhile, yeah. they're just like I'm talking about sandwiches. I'm That's sorry. hilarious. So, so anyways, go, go read Will's book. We'll actually link it in the episode description for this. Right. And it is our book club book. So join one of two actually this month. We got two books one- this month. Guys, we're we're big readers. <laughs> but join the Gov Club if you haven't yet. We it is formerly known as our brand ambassador program. And we have also implemented this book club, which is just a hit. So join, you can go to girlinthegov.com and learn more about it and sign up. But back to the Senate, back to mm. the main character energy. The Senate will begin voting this week on legislation to repeal the Iraq war authorization, setting up final passage around the 20th anniversary of George W. Bush era invasion the George W. Bush air invasion. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will file cloture Tuesday on a bipartisan bill that scraps the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force against Iraq's government, which the United States now counts as a security partner in the region. The repeal push has been led by Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, and Todd Young, who is Republican from Indiana. Schumer's move puts the Senate on track to take an initial procedural vote on Thursday and pass the bill as early as next week. The measure is expected to easily overcome a GOP filibuster with all Democrats and more than a dozen Republicans in support. It cleared the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week on a bipartisan 13 to 8 vote. It's been more than half a century since both chambers of Congress voted to repeal an authorization for the use of military force. The House repealed the 2002 Iraq authorization two years ago with substantial GOP support, but the Senate never voted. So the Senate's actions over the next couple of weeks will represent a rare effort to reassert Congress, Congress's authority over matters of war and peace, and it's one that President Joe Biden has already said he supports. So on March 20th, 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq with the goal of toppling Saddam Hussein's regime. The war began based on the Bush administration's assessment that Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction, which turned out to be false, of course. <laughs> The war formally ended in 2011, but the United States eventually led a coalition of nations to eradicate the ISIS terrorist group, which had gained a foothold in Iraq following the American withdrawal. The 2002 authorization in particular served as a key legal justification for the Obama administration's counterterrorism operations targeting ISIS. Few lawmakers dispute that the authorizations, as written, have outlived their usefulness and should either be repealed or rewritten, but opponents of the Kane-Young bill argue it would send the wrong signal to adversaries seeking to exploit perceived U.S. pullbacks from the region. The bill's path in the House is uncertain. Many of Speaker McCarthy's allies and the conservatives who helped him get to the speakership are co-sponsors of the House version, so they've got some leverage. If repeal gets a House floor vote, it would pass easily with dozens of Republicans backing it. McCarthy also has promised an open amendment process for the legislation, so the AUMF repeal would be tacked onto a larger measure like the annual defense policy bill. Also this week in the Senate, really quick, the Senate will hold a procedural vote as as soon as Wednesday on Eric Garcetti's nomination to serve as U.S. ambassador to India. Just two GOP senators, Todd Young of Indiana and Bill Haggerty of T- Tennessee, voted for Garcetti in the Foreign Relations Committee, but a few more are expected to back him on the floor. There could be one or two Democratic defectors on Garcetti, but we expect him to be confirmed with a majority of Democrats and a handful of Republicans. There's also no update yet on Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's health status following his fall last week, but everyone expects him to return as soon as he possibly can. But there's another story here regarding some absent senators that Samantha can run us through. Okay, this story reminds me, it's giving grade school. Like, Anyway, we're talking about absences in the Senate, which are becoming a huge issue for Democrats, but like just the idea of like absences and attendance, I don't know, for some reason, it just brings me back into that mindset, you know, like mm-hmm. was a kid that was chronically late to school, not, not absent, but just that category. Anyways, that's the absences, I suppose. So absences in the Senate, like I said, are becoming an issue for Democrats, leaving them a fragile majority. Yikes. Senate Democrats have been without Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania and Diane Feinstein of California in recent weeks, creating a 49-49 split in the chamber that has forced members of the conference not only bring up votes that they know they have bipartisan support and cause problems at the committee level. It's the reality when you're 51-49 every day, it's decisive, Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois said, who is the number two Senate Democrat. He also told The Hill, this is the reality of life in the Senate. Not always so glamorous over there. They might have main character energy, but not always the source of glamour. <laughs> Nonetheless, veteran has been out for much of the past month after checking himself into Walter Reed National Military Medical Center for treatment for clinical depression. Though his office has tweeted pictures of him meeting with staff at the hospital and said he is engaged on a number of legislative items, including rail safety and the farm bill. By the way, speaking of the farm bill, go listen to our latest episode because it's all about the farm bill. Farm bill. Farm bill. Okay. He's not expected back in the Senate this week. 
Feinstein, who's 89, is recovering at home from a case of shingles, having missed the last two weeks of votes. So I have heard shingles are so painful. My parents have had them. Oh, my goodness gracious. They've heard the same. Brutal. There's also a shingles vaccine. I think you have to be a certain age for it. Cannot confirm, cannot deny. The California Democrat, who's the oldest sitting U.S. senator, tweeted last week that she's continued to receive treatment and was hoping to return to Washington as soon as possible. The 49-49 split can fluctuate with other short-term absences, but the loss of two reliable votes for Democratic nominees and issues is already creating two headaches on the Senate floor as the chamber takes up privileged resolutions pushed by Republicans via the Congressional Review Act, which do not need Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's blessing to come to the floor and require only a simple majority to pass. The Senate this week is set to take up a resolution disapproving of the Biden administration's waters of the United States. The Shut the fuck up. The WOTUS rule? <laughs> I love this. Without the Democratic pair, the measure is expected to pass with the support of Senators Joe Manchin and possible other Senate Democrats forcing Biden to wield his veto pen. The pair being sidelined forced Vice President Harris to be present on February 28th for the two tie-breaking votes on district court nominees. Feinstein is expected to return to work later this month. I think this is interesting on so many levels. I think that this actually could be a good thing for Harris because it could give her more visibility. And I feel like a common complaint, which is obviously stacked with nuances, is like, where is our vice president? But she also was getting that flack, like when she was the yeah of the Senate back before these 2022 midterms when the Democrats boosted up their majority. No, this is very interesting. Also super curious when Fetterman's going to be back and what the deal yeah. is with that because hospitalized for clinical depression, I mean, that's really scary and, you know, not sure what that path to recovery entails. I think for Feinstein, like it is, I think shingles, you can probably be like, she started the medication this day. She should be recovered right. by this day. But something revolving around your mental health, I think, is there's not really a set timeline as to when you can be back or even if you can be back, like, do you go back to your regular routine and potentially trigger like falling back into that? So right. very sad to see what's happening with Senator Fetterman and just hoping for the best for that man, truly. Totally. The other interesting thing, too, is just like back to the Mitch McConnell of it all, because I sent this to you last week. I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> if McConnell has to tap out for some reason, health related, he's old. He's an old man, too. We there's a Democratic governor in Kentucky and how it usually works per state is that the governor then appoints the Senate to fill that senator seat if they have to step down or, for example, when Kamala Harris became vice president, Gap Gavin Newsom appointed Alex Pidia. So I was like, oh, my God, Sam, like, can you imagine something, you know, God mm-hmm. forbid happens to Mitch McConnell? We don't we don't wish Andy Bashir legal, legal department. No, we do yeah. not wish bad on or death not, or sickness on anyone. Thank you. But legal department out. strategy strategy <laughs> standpoint, I'm like. Oh, we have a Democratic governor in Kentucky who would be appointing the senator. False. Literally, I like looked into this last week and I think it was in 2021. McConnell literally did his due diligence. Proactive man. I got to give him credit. He's smart. He went to the state legislature in Kentucky, proposed a bill that would, because they have like a super majority in in the House, but a Democratic governor said... Here's this bill. It'll basically change the rules so that if a sitting senator has to bow out of their role, the governor actually doesn't get to just pick whoever they want. The party in which the senator is from, so for example, for Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul would be the GOP, would get to select three potential candidates for the governor to pick. So then they would be picking, obviously, three Republican options for Governor Bashir to then pick to fill the Senate seat if, God forbid, something happened to Mitch McConnell. So this man really just proactive king and was like, I might I might croak one day, but 
but I God, I cannot give my seat away to a Democrat. No, no, no. Mm-mm. And he did all the loops, all the loopholes and got this bill passed. Andy Bashir obviously vetoed it. Supermajority over overrides the veto. It's now a law. So which is so wild. I mean, but it also like makes sense. I mean, th- these are some of the moves that the Republicans proactively make, like not even just Mitch McConnell. So good at. They're so good at. They think ahead. They think what's gonna what could happen in five years, what could happen in 10 mm-hmm. years, what guarantees our power? Like they think more along yep. those lines. And yep. while there's issue with that, they like I said, like they're smart. They're they don't miss a beat on that. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of times, and don't get us wrong, like there's definitely some absolute morons, but there's morons on both sides of the aisle. So let's just make that very distinctly clear. But like, well, sometimes there's some, you know, talking mouthpieces that are like, oh my God, this person's beyond stupid. There are some, the majority of people are majority. Well, the other thing is that they're actually very smart. We, they're just using their intelligence for the wrong reason. Yeah. But the GOP is also like, I think publicly facing like the, their, the narratives that they push out there, the things that they say to the public, the stances they take. I think especially when looking at kind of these establishment GOP leaders, like it's not actually like how they feel like they do what they need to do to win, like you said. And sometimes that means like saying they're going to push a national abortion ban, like, you know, or just kind of things that are more bigoted and maybe they don't necessarily even care at the end of the day about abortion, but they know that's what their base wants and they know that's what, you know, is going to move the needle for them or whatever. And behind the scenes, it's just all strategic and they are really, really, really smart in that way. But I think like to your point, it's just there is such a vast difference between the Democratic strategy and how it's always reactive and the GOP is very proactive. And I have been thinking about that so much the last few weeks in particular as I've been going through all of the different, the bad bills, the good bills, whatever, and looking at the difference between the red state legislatures and the blue and what they're passing or what they're trying, what they're introducing. And what I've seen across the more democratic states or democratic states in general is that the bills, like you're saying, they're reactive. It's like, okay, let's make Minnesota a trans refuge state, which God bless. Let's, you know, like it's like fill in the blank of like issues that the Republicans have been eating at and now make it worse because now they have even more power to be able to do something terrible with. Yeah. But now the Democrats are like reacting to it while they are continuing to just make progress on what they're already been working on for literally decades. Mm. So it's like you're seeing two different paces and two different strategies. You're like, and I'm happy the Democrats are reacting, but it's like, guys, like we're behind the eight ball. I had a thought the other day. A thought. And a whole thought. It's it's another really makes you think thought, I think. Oh, boy. Okay. Because with you just saying that, I was like, well, I really think there is a big part of the Democratic strategy that they want to be reactive to the Republicans because at the end of the day, like when the Republicans do heinous shit, it makes people pay attention and make people turn out to vote or whatever. And I'm like, is there a side of the Democrats that honestly like loves this new GOP and like doesn't want it to change because the way that it really makes people fired up, it's clearly helped them the past three elections. Mm. You know, it just makes you like think, you said, guys. makes you think. I where I see crossover with the like that makes you think and my makes you think of past days is like the idea of like. Someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, or a Madison Cawthorn as like a classic go-to of like them being these mouthpieces of horribleness. But sometimes it's like better to like almost keep them there because you can actually see the dangers and it becomes one of these things that is an easy, not just talking point, but like strategic, like outreach more airtime. point. They get more attention. Right. But it yeah. like pushes down to react and to turn out and all of those things. And yeah. like sometimes not necessarily this is not saying also like broadly like every democrat is like hoping the republicans are heinous like obviously when the republicans act this way it is super detrimental and dangerous to like everyday people and attacks people's rights and it's like but i think what i'm referring to is more like that establishment like capital d like democrat strategy Mm -hmm. like dnc headquarters like you know when they're in there and same with like 
me saying that too about the GOP. Like I know there's also really heinous people in the GOP, but I think like right up top, both parties are kind of thinking bigger and are more just like strategy focused than solution focused. And it's just become that way in a lot of ways. It's just one of my theories, but it makes sense, you know? It doesn't not. I'll put it that way. We have now become apparently a conspiracy theory podcast. It's fine. <laughs> no, we just make you no. think. Okay. It's just, yeah, just look. It's make those questions in the brains. Think about them. Just, just always know. question the powers that be. And I don't think that should be a conspiracy. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. And then we end up seeing it when things do hit the fan, like a fucking bank going under or a train getting derailed it's like obviously that's looking at corporations and greed and the powers that be in that way but it's all connected and it's all at the end of the day like just make sure you know keep your eyes open to everything but those are our top stories of the week we have a fresh episode for you all tomorrow and one that i think everyone thoroughly enjoy yes and i am so excited this was such a fun episode to record i was like literally thinking about our even our fast five and it's like we have to release them all like they're all hilarious answers oh my gosh, so good like so good so this week's episode is an interview with our friend shiva and he is a member of the boise idaho school board and he's also still in high school he was like i'm tired of this bs he was an environmental activist still is before he decided to take this leap into things, but we get to the, the whole story of how this happened, what young people can learn from his story, what the school board actually does. And I think this was like one of those things that was so important about this particular episode is that we broke down really like what that position does because it's been so all over the news, rightfully so, because this group called Moms for Liberty, which is this like far right group of moms that are trying to ban library books, trying to do this whole backwards parental rights movement that's just like so, the you know, extremists. I was going to say Christian nationalists, but those those are the you know one and the same these days. So anyways, like I said, there has been a lot of conversation recently about running for school board. What does that actually mean? The Republicans gunning for school board and have for a long time, but like how do we take that power back as Democrats, especially when some of these positions are listed as nonpartisan, but like Nothing's really nonpartisan. So we get into all of that. And it's like, I just think it's like a really inspiring episode, not to mention really helpful. It is. It's an amazing episode. It's fun. It's insightful. It's inspiring. And, and you know what? In case you were not motivated already to listen, he's a Swifty. Oh my gosh. Big Swifty. Yep. And just a true Gen Zer, which we love to see. So go listen. Those are our top stories. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Toodaloo. Toodles. Toodles.